0: She's a queen, mother, sister, daughter, neighbor, lover He's a king,
1: father, brother, son of every stranger We sing, sounds better when we get together One thing we got to learn to do Take care
0: Claudia Day is a gifted author, playwright, and fashion designer currently based in Toronto, where she raises a family with her husband, the musician Don Kerr. That's Don's band Communism playing in the background as I'm speaking to you. Claudia's debut novel was 2004's critically acclaimed Stunt, which was a stunning and surreal story about a young girl in Toronto gathering clues to locate her father, who is up and vanished after leaving behind a cryptic farewell note. Day has also written plays that have been produced internationally, including Trout Stanley, which is also propelled by a mysterious disappearance, unusual twin sisters, a newcomer to town, and characters with puzzling origins. Day's long-standing fascination with the strangeness of people in family dynamics and humanity's relationship with erasure or vanishing has never resulted in as compelling a narrative as her latest novel, Heartbreaker, which is out now via HarperCollins. Heartbreaker tells the haunting story of a remote territory locked to the groove of all that is 1985, occupied by a group of people who once belonged to a cult and struggle to maintain some sense of normalcy while engaging in intertwining relationships that desperately confuse love with lust and family with friendship. The main character is Billie Jean Fontaine, who drops into the territory out of nowhere, mothers a child named Pony, and then disappears one day, 15 years later. The story of the search for Billie Jean is told vividly from the perspectives of her daughter Pony, her loyal dog Jenna Rollins, and an appropriately named young man named Supernatural. Ahead of her appearance at the 2018 Eden Mills Writers' Festival, Claudia made time to discuss Heartbreaker with me, her interest in music and fashion design, how her own role as a mother and wife may have inspired her work, and much more. With in-kind support from Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, and of course, listeners like you, who make flexible monthly pledges at patreon.com slash Control. download episodes and subscribe to this podcast this is the 423rd episode of Creative Control featuring Claudia Day with your host, me, Vish Khanna.
1: Take care of each
0: other, take
1: care of each other, try to see our future getting clear. Take care of each other, we can do much better.
0: Hi, Claudia. How's it going?
1: Hi, good, Vish. How are you?
0: I'm pretty well. I'm pretty well. Where in the world are you today?
1: Today I am in my writing studio in the West End of Toronto.
0: Very nice. You've been in Toronto as far as I know forever. How long have you been in Toronto? I can't remember.
1: I guess around 15 years. And before that, I was in Montreal. And then before Montreal, I was in Toronto. So this is where I was born and raised.
0: Okay, okay. And and it's fair to say, the city of Toronto is always changing. I, I was thinking about this before we, we connected. And I, I was going to ask you about your perspective on Toronto as a, a city in flux, because it, it always seems to be under construction. It always seems to change a little bit do you notice that do you agree i'm an outsider right so i kind of notice it more but have you noticed that do you feel that
1: i feel that i do feel that we um went to manhattan about a month ago and felt like it was easier to navigate than toronto was toronto's become like it's certainly thriving but it's also at times tricky to go from one end to the other Mm -hmm. um yeah
0: Okay. So you you but you love it. You mean you've been there a long time. It's your home.
1: It's my home. It really is my home. Yeah, I have a lot of love for it. Mm. I have a lot of love for other places though too. Oh,
0: like like Montreal?
1: <laughs> Definitely Montreal.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a uh, I I I like Toronto just fine as well. And as you know, I'm a mm. I'm a fan of you and your work. Uh, I believe in some capacity I've Talk to you about all of your books, almost all of your books.
1: Yeah, that's right. Thanks, Vish. Well, that's I, so nice. You're well, like the only consistency in my whole life.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I want to congratulate you on, on Heartbreaker, first of all, and uh, because I enjoyed it immensely. Thank you. You're Thanks w- no, so, in. so very much. It's a dizzying book, and I, I thought for people who are listening who haven't yet dug in and are, are wondering about it, is it possible for you... Uh, to get this going, can you sort of summarize the story a little bit? Just tell us what it's about so that uh, people, sure. people can clue in.
1: Okay, so Heartbreaker begins with Billie Jean Fontaine. Bolting barefoot from her bungalow and vanishing into the cold October darkness. She's in a place called The Territory, which is basically the remains of a cult set in the far north. The year is 1985. And like a crime scene, those who are left behind um, end up kind of putting together her secrets and and why she bolted in the first place. And so the book is in three voices. First, her daughter. Her daughter's called Pony. Pony's 15. She's like this kind of storm of a teenaged voice. And then Billie Jean's dog. And her dog's name is Jenna Rollins. And she's like this ancient lesbian killer dog with like a dancer's posture. And then the third part of the book is told by this kind of watchful, mysterious teenage boy in the territory called Supernatural.
0: Right. OK, that that encapsulates the basic elements, but it is a, a wild story on some level. I think your, your prose is very fascinating, uh, you know, the way you've told mm-hmm. the story, the way you've divided the story. I feel like it's a meditation on motherhood and marriage and the isolating aspects of both of those things. And then hmm. for some reason, you've said it in 1985, time is frozen in 1985 in this isolated mm-hmm. place. This is, my, this is where I'm coming from after reading this book. Let's talk about some of these things. First of all, why 1985? Why did that year resonate with you as a place to freeze these people in time?
1: I think there are a few different reasons behind that, which I can only kind of see now that I have some distance from the book. One is just the aesthetics of 1985. It's the most unsettled time. And so as like a visual person, I'm incredibly drawn to all the tropes of that time, like the leopard print and the electric blue eyeshadow and the crimped hair and the big gold hoop earrings. Um, And then also the music of that time, you know, Nazareth and air supply prints. And then I think... On a deeper level, well, technically, it would be very hard to write the story of a woman vanishing with the technology that we have now. Mm. You know, phones have made our lives so unmysterious, and it's, like, impossible to disappear um, with GPSs and everything else that's on hand. So, I think that was the other big aspect, was, like, revisiting a time inside humanity that was, like, much more peopled and much less robotic.
0: Okay, that that's fair. Does that time resonate with you personally? Was 1985 a big year for you?
1: Well, I guess I was 13 in 1985. So, you know, I was in like the bodysuit and the high-waisted jeans, like going to a ravine at night and meeting up with my friends and like leaning into a mirror and you know, trying new things with my face and that whole thing of like puberty is such an extreme time of transition. And I'm so drawn to those extreme times. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, adolescence is like the feeling of excitement. You're in this like constant conversation with yourself and every night could be the night that changes your life. You know, so I think that that's why I wanted to Return essentially to the feeling of that year and that time.
0: Is there anything about that time that you view as sort of silly in retrospect? You mentioned some of the fashion. You mentioned some of the music. Uh, there was a sort of 80s revival a few years ago uh, where people were seemed to be adopting some of those aesthetics, uh, both culturally, musically, whatever. And, you know, there still is. There's this show Stranger Things and there's other sort of throwbacks to the 80s like do you view it as kind of a kitschy period do you view it as a kind of embarrassing period that needs to be explored
1: I guess for me I'm always drawn to the place that's like really just beside parody you know mm. so it's like wes anderson or like al Motivar or like professional wrestling like i love a big expression because there's a vulnerability in that so yes i see how like like the big hair of the power balladeers you know those those the power balladeers and their deep cuts like love hurts i see how that's kind of funny but to me i actually find it like emotional, hmm. you know, and yeah. I'm not a cool person. Like I'm one thing that I really resist in art is like a feeling of cleverness or coldness. I I like to feel things. I like to be moved. I like to be changed, you know, and I think fiction can change a person.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. So I see the silliness, but for me, it's like not that.
0: Well speaking of warmth and being moved and change I mean I alluded to the fact that I see motherhood uh, and marriage mm-hmm. and relationships and and also how sexuality intertwines with all those things those are all in this book there's a lustful there's like a wild lustfulness I think within this territory mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. a real sort of emphasis on childbirth and and mm-hmm. you know affairs and things like that and I, I mean I know you're a mother. I know you're married. I know you have some perspective mm-hmm. on some of these things, but can you talk about mm-hmm. this particular exploration of those themes? And, and and if I'm off the mark, by the way, call me out, Claudia. Don't be afraid. I just <laughs> that's what my reading of this is. It's and I and you mentioned the cult, mm-hmm. which the cult thing is. That's a big thing now. People being brainwashed by in plain sight. You know, it used to be these isolated communities. I feel like in mm-hmm. this internet world that you alluded to as well, we are all. I feel like zombies a little bit. We're all brainwashed a little bit. Anyway, I don't mean to conflate too many things yeah. at once, but can you let's let's talk mm-hmm. about the mother, marriage, relationship stuff, and, and the sex mm-hmm. stuff because I think that's really fascinating and a, a key point of the book.
1: Yeah, I mean the central character is Billie Jean Fontaine, and she's named after the Michael Jackson song. And she, part of why I wanted to write her, is because I feel like women who do bad things are underrepresented in books Mm. and i'm really drawn to women characters who contain multitudes and contradictions she lies she cheats she steals she begs she does a lot of things that are criminal and immoral she's also like a totally devoted mother and a totally devoted wife you know so how does that how does that all exist inside a single person you know that was a huge idea for me it was that we can be more than one person inside a lifetime and i guess for myself certainly these huge shifts in my own life when i got married when i became a mother i could feel like the tectonic plates of who i had been shifting you know Um, so you contain like former selves, even my teenage self, my 1985 self was in there as well. Yeah. And so that I was really drawn to in the book. And I think the other thing about Billy, and this touches on your question around cults is just the wolf versus the wolf pack. You know, she's Mm. a completely independent thinker. She scripts her own life in a really dangerous kind of unrelenting way. And she doesn't follow the conventions of this world. And as you said, the world that I've made actually feels really um, close to the world that we're living in now, in the sense that it's, um, you know, like based on a fragile economy, that there are rules around marriage and sex and birth and... You know, um, the identical trucks and the identical bungalows, like the conformity of the place and how if you stray from that, you're just so suspect.
0: Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So so there's something going on. You, you feel like this is, while it takes place in 1985, ostensibly, I don't want to give too much away, of course, but while it takes place mm-hmm. in 1985, you feel like this is a real commentary on what's happening not just for you but maybe for us in general.
1: I do. Like I people have asked me if the world is a dystopia, you know, if I consider it that way and I really don't. Like I really consider it to be like a 2000 mile drive away that it just happens to be out of view, it happens to be outside of the news cycle, but it's happening. You know, as you said people are getting brainwashed everywhere now in plain
0: sight. Yeah. Do you do you mm-hmm. think there are communities like this? Was, was this drawn from any research you'd done about some some sort of contemporary version of this? Beyond you know, I'm speaking generally about modern times and brainwashing and and the way people uh, interact with the news and information and and the outside world. Like this is a very isolated place. They get there. The internet is like a delivery guy, <laughs> uh, or someone. Yeah, sort of, exactly. Yeah, so exactly. Fi- That's brilliant. I, fi- I love that. <laughs> I find that fascinating because <laughs> I, 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 the more we learn about parts of America right now and parts of Canada right now, mm-hmm. the more we realize that our what we generally view as reality is not other people's reality. And I don't know if you were trying to create a kind of empathetic atmosphere for this book like there are people who just think a certain way and that's it there's nothing you can do about it they're just trapped mm-hmm. in their in their in their mindsets like, do you feel like you're making a comment on that
1: well i definitely when i was doing my research i read a lot about the flds the church of latter-day saints in the u.s and was so struck by mothers putting their 13 year old daughters in wedding dresses and loading them into a van and driving them across a border to a roadside motel to be married off to an elderly leader. You know, I was so haunted by that complicity. Like, who are you? What remains of you when you forfeit your moral authority? You know, so that was definitely a preoccupation and that's ongoing for me. And you can see even just visually how that entered the book with the big hair designs and the pastel prairie dresses and all of that. Um, But then on a personal note, I realized that, you know, I spent eight summers in lumber camps tree planting and then cooking and when everyone was in the camp it was very kind of wild wild country you know and we were a couple of hours from the nearest town and this was pre-internet you know we're driving like unmarked logging roads and setting up camps so we're really apart from the culture and from the economy and from our lives you know and a lot of um that experience, I think, entered the book, even in small symbolic ways like duct tape and big dogs and big trucks and the wish for ease and comfort and and love, you know. But it also when the planters would leave for the day and I was alone and I didn't have a walkie talkie and I didn't have a truck, I had that feeling of like I could just disappear. And like, I'm so far away from everything.
0: Was there something appealing about that? I, I think as a parent myself, uh, I've come to value and a, a, a someone in a you know as a married parent, I, I think I value mm-hmm. my time uh, on my own a little bit more than I ever had to. Uh, do you have that? Do you feel that?:
1: Oh yeah, of course, completely. Um, we have planning for your next trip. And then you become a parent and it's like the death of miscellany. It's like all of that time in your head dreaming is like replaced by like this kind of dutiful list that's actually really important. Right. Um, So, yeah, I think I mean, one thing that's kind of beautiful is as your children get a little bit older they end up having like a concurrent wish for autonomy, I think, right. you know, just as you want to close the door and be on their own, they feel like exactly the same way.
0: And and that's reflected, I think, in the rebelliousness of Pony uh, on some level in mm-hmm. this book. And mm-hmm. I mean, that is a very interesting character. I want to ask about this division um, as a, as a sort of structural choice, this notion of dividing the story from three perspectives And maybe why you thought that was an effective way of telling the same story, Um, because it's really one incident that drives the book. And I mean, Mm -hmm. obviously, the perspective of a dog um, is a bit unusual. Mm -hmm. And the dog's name is Jenna Mm -hmm. Rollins, which is also fascinating, (laughs) Uh, an actress, uh, maybe a little bit like Billie Jean. And I I should say Billie Jean. Mm I didn't even. I forgot about this notion that Billie Jean is named after this Michael Jackson song about mm. um, paternity and uh, <laughs> where mm-hmm. a child's, mm-hmm. m- who a child's mother might act, or father and mother might actually be, which is a recurring theme in the book as well. Anyway, uh, can you talk about the, the structural choice of dividing uh, this narrative th- these these three ways?
1: Well, I. It came to me really like I, I'm not one of those writers who maps out books. like I really work kind of intuitively and that came to me really early. um Girl, dog, boy and structuring the story that way. I think I'm because of my dark mind, very drawn to the idea of like a police report, like a crime is committed and then you have a group of eyewitnesses. And depending on their perspective and their relationship to the victim, um, or whoever kind of occupies the center of the crime, then you end up solving it, you know? But they'll all have a different lens and they'll all have a different view mm. and a different investment in in what's happening. Um, and I felt like Pony is like a slice of wildness you know she's 15 she's got a lot of secrets she has a lot of anger she's coping with the betrayal that she feels you know her mom has abandoned her and her mom has essentially been shut in for like three months before she bolted from the house and then jenna the dog is sort of aristocratic. She has this, like, stateliness. Yeah. Um, she's kind of erudite and, and and polite, and she has a huge amount of the backstory um, because she's like a witness. She's a guard and a confessional and all of those things.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And then Soups is kind of most inside the world, like the real world. He's got, like, deep geekiness and, like, a digital watch, and he's, like, tracking the scene and the search operation. And, you know, so in a way it's, like, the book moves from the internal to the external
0: right right
1: given the progression of the voices and so it could only really conclude with soups in his section
0: right okay i mean i'm i'm hoping that all of this drives people who are listening right now to to pick up this book uh, because i mm. i i really enjoy it and i it i mentioned that your prose is particularly striking and distinctive and and poetic and i thought at this point, I would just ask you a little bit about your writing background. As I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. I'm familiar with, I think, most—I I feel like I've—did I miss a book? I feel. I, how many books are you at right now, Claudia?
1: <laughs> well, I wrote three plays and then one novel, one how-to book about sex, and then this novel. I'm, so I'm, I guess this I'm, is number six.
0: Number six. I'm vaguely I've... in the sex book, aren't I? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, you're, you're actually the star of the sex book, <laughs> Yeah, the whole centerfold thing. Yeah.
0: You named a, a character in your sex book after me, I believe. Yeah. Is that right? Did babe? I? I think so. I don't I, know. There's a Vish in there, and i you told me to keep an eye out for it, and I was like, what?
1: Wow, okay. Then I did.
0: Yeah, you did. You don't even remember. Congratulations, I should... <laughs> you don't even you don't remember this my goodness
1: Uh, no it it's a terrible thing like you complete a project you complete a book and then you like you actually really exit it and it's a great um it's a great and beautiful thing because then it actually just belongs to other people right right you know it's been your secret for so long and you're toil and i mean that like in the most loving way it's a total compulsion but then you finish it and it's like okay now it's yours and i go into like a fugue state basically
0: right it's also it's also the plight of the cultural creator to spend potentially years on something like this and then have it go into the world and be not you want I, i i assume you want as many people as possible to experience this book, but at the same time, you know that you're not going to reach everyone. Uh, and that's, mm-hmm. that's got to be a little weird, you know, to, to think that you spend all this time into something and it might just disappear into obscurity.
1: Yeah, I try not to think about that too much. Right. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> um, because then I'll end up like face down on the carpet. But I, um... I definitely, when I was working on this book, I thought so much about my reader, you know, Mm -hmm. like it felt like such a private, intimate thing, you know, and the voices too, because of my backgrounds as a playwright, the three voices of the book I would picture as like rooms, like a theater, you know, and you walk in, the lights come up, you're with Pony, the lights go down, you walk into the next room and there's Jenna, you know, and then their soups so i don't know i thought about i i just i guess i thought about my my readership so much with this book particularly i have to say so of course the hope is that um it reaches people and the way books reach people are you know it's such a strange world that we live in now, with the the great persuasive presence of the internet. But it's actually just human to human. It's people saying, "Hey, I read this book. I love this book. You should read this book."
0: Yeah, and you know, and, yeah, I agree. Yeah. I agree. And, and speaking of the reader, I do what I where I was going with the uh, uh, praise for your prose is a little bit of background. Mm. I just wonder mm. if you can sort of enlighten us. Where did you? find your voice how did you begin writing you know what drew you to writing is is I guess my question first of all
1: well I think I I was making books when I was little like when I was like five I was writing books I the first book that I wrote was about two flowers going to a flower hospital and I stapled it it was like some kind of punk zine um and that's still basically my aesthetic you know (laughs) so that That's been forever. I've always been writing. I've always been like an incredibly hungry reader. Books to me are sentient and like they're just the most profound company. They always have been like that was my, you know, my soundtrack as a child was just whatever book was in my head. And then I formalized it. I went to McGill. I studied English literature. I wrote a play in high school, another play in high school, uh, and then I wrote a play at McGill. And then I went to the National Theater School um, and I started to concentrate my reading and really started to discover some of my heroes and, you know, big moments. The biggest one was the first one, I guess, seeing the play adaptation for Michael and Bache's The Collected Works of Billy the Kid. Mm -hmm. And it was such a wild complete thing it had so much vitality and then so much rigor like so much craft it was so like cared for but it was still so like dangerous and i just thought that's what i want to do you know
0: right okay you
1: can you can photoshop work right you can photoshop fiction you can wreck it by like overcorrecting it you know, Mm -hmm. and you can also pay attention to commerce and then lose your voice, you know, so all of those things have, have guided me. And then I just, I really love funny. I think funny is really important. I really love to laugh. And so I look at pro stylists like joy Williams or Lori Moore or Samantha hunt, um, check off, even Sam Shepard, who I know is mostly dark, but there's something, there's some funniness that underpins the pain that mm. I'm really drawn to.
0: Well, the other thing that I thought was curious about uh, your description of what's going on in the book and in terms of it being set in 1985 is you really struck upon the fashion. And I know you're interested in fashion. Yeah. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong. You're you're, you're a fashion designer? <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: Yeah, okay. So you, you, you got into writing and you, you explained that. How do you get into fashion per se?
1: I mean, really, I've always had a love for dressing. It's always been a really creative act for me. I grew up with my mom and my sister just essentially playing dress up and then leaving the house and whatever confections we came up with. Um, so it was always a huge part of how I expressed myself. Mm. And then between books my closest friend and i we both just had babies so we were like probably wildly underslept and like full of romance decided to start this design studio called horses atelier so that was about 6 years ago now okay um and then it really became you know a business very quickly and it's it's a huge joy and it's very different from writing It's hugely visual and technical and administrative. And writing can be those things as well. But they complement each other. They're like two worlds, two places that I get to live. And I visit one and then I visit the other and go between them.
0: So fashion, from my perspective, is either uh, it can be practical, it can be an art project. Where where does your, in terms of your work as a fashion (laughs) designer, are you making things that you know, one person would wear down a runway, and then that would be kind of it. Or are you making things that people can actually wear uh, all the time? Wow is that a, is that a weird question? Like, I, is that an ignorant? No,
1: no, no I <laughs> I totally love that. I love that so much, Vish. I would say it's actually just like practical art. So it's practical in the sense that we only make what we most want to wear, and we make clothes for women whose days are very dynamic um but we make things here in Toronto so there's obviously a lot of politics um in that you know we mm. we live by our values um, and we work with like mills in Europe mostly for, to source our fabrics. So it's very fine, but very classic and timeless. Okay. I would say, and I, maybe that sounded like Muhammad Ali. I, I, I don't mean to at all, <laughs> but I'm, I'm trying to describe, I'm trying to give you a view of what it looks like. And I guess the two categories are, um, slip dresses and jumpsuits. We make a lot of workwear. Okay. So a lot. Lot
0: of um yeah well i have a theory tell me if you, you I, i'm curious if you would agree with me but i have a theory that musicians <laughs> in particular drive fashion drive the way we kind of behave oh. aesthetically more than movie stars i feel like movie stars copy musicians as mm. well and and kind of look oh. a little bit like musicians and i and i know that it's striking to me that in setting the book in 1985, most of the cultural references are musical or, or fashion oriented. And so that's why mm. I, I wonder if you might be aligned with this notion that because I, I believe you love music as well uh, and your life is immersed in some music, right?
1: Definitely. Well, I married a musician, and so we have a recording studio just four floors beneath um, where I'm sitting right now. Right. But I love that idea so much, and that makes so much sense to me, and I haven't thought about that, like, sequence of influence that way ever, and I think that's totally brilliant and super true. (laughs) It's like, you know, it all starts with, like, Blondie or David Bowie or, you know, Benjamin Clementine. Like, you can see the... Yeah, this this sway, that sway that they hold in terms of how we then want to look when we exit our houses.
0: Yeah, I I think there's something there. And I don't exactly Mm -hmm. know what it is about musicians that would drive such things, but it seems to be true. It's something yeah. I've noticed. I think you
1: should like maybe copyright that idea.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, I've set it out to the world now, so who knows what's going to happen? What could I do with that idea? I don't know what to do. Is that a, is that a book idea? Is that a is that an article? I got to do something with it. You're right. I think there's something mm. going on. Yeah. Okay. I'll mm-hmm. I'll, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll start pitching it around. So speaking of uh, next projects, what's coming up next for you? I know you'll be uh, touring, so to speak, behind. Uh, heartbreaker, you'll be you'll be traveling around to music, or rather, uh, writers festivals and things like that. Is that fair?
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and and amazing bookstores, and I'll be in conversation with some of my favorite brains. So that should be really fun. That's mostly September and October, and then I have another novel brewing um, in my head, but I can't talk about it. It's sort of like opening the door to the dark room. I have to keep it very secret. Sure.
0: But, yeah. but it's heartening to know that you've already got it. Because it's been a – since stunt came out in what year was it? 2000 –
1: Yeah, that's right. It's been a decade. It's like a space phenomenon. Like yeah. it's been I, – I've I, – so it makes sense in a way for me in terms of my own internal logic that I have like a stack of ideas.
0: Yeah. Okay. So it's the, the fact that mm-hmm. you're already – Moving on to another novel idea is, is is excellent. Okay, so where can people learn more about Heartbreaker? Where can people learn more about you if they wish uh, on the mm. Internet or wherever you'd like to send them, Claudia?
1: Oh, that's so nice. Uh, well, I guess I have a website, which is, I don't know if that's the equivalent of having a MySpace, but I have a website, and it's just my name, which is Claudia Day. And then I do a lot on Instagram, uh, which is Claudia Daytona. And I visit Twitter every once in a while. Um, But mostly, I will be in these various bookstores and writers' festivals, and I much prefer, like, human-to-human contact whenever possible. So, if you like to go to those things, come on over and say hello.
0: Okay, and people can learn more about those appearances at isaclaudiaday.com?
1: You got it. Claudia yeah, Dayton. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Well, this
0: was really, really uh, fascinating for me, Claudia. I appreciate this, wow. uh, this time and I wish you the best of luck with everything going forward.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Vish. And thank you for such a close and thoughtful read of the novel. I appreciate it so much.
0: Special thanks again to the folks at HarperCollins and my friend Don Kerr and my other friend. Claudia Day, the last person, Claudia, was just on the 423rd episode of Creative Control, which is part of the Entertainment One Podcast Network and is available on all iOS and Android platforms and also on things like Spotify, YouTube, and Audio Boom. If you can't find an episode that you're looking for on any of those platforms, or if you wish to learn more about me and sign up for my regularly scheduled newsletter, please visit my website, vishkana.com. You can like Creative Control on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at vishcreative, or follow me at vishkana. You can also listen to a radio show version of Creative Control on Wednesdays at noon Eastern Standard Time around the world at cfru.ca or on an actual radio at 93.3 FM if you're in or near Guelph. Visit patreon.com/slash creative control to make a flexible monthly donation and and keep this podcast going. Thank you to everyone who pledges to our Patreon. Please consider pledging at patreon.com/slash creative control. Thanks again to the in-kind support I receive for this program from businesses and people who work at those businesses. Businesses like Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, Planet Bean Coffee, and Granddad's Donuts. I'd also like to thank my pal Jim Guthrie. He lets me use the instrumental version of his song, The Rest is Yet to Come, to end this show each week. Go to jimguthrie.org to learn more about Jim. And finally, thanks to you for listening to this show and subscribing to the podcast on whatever platform you use and downloading episodes and and just telling your friends about it. I think that's the way the show is going to make its way into the world by people saying, have you checked out this show? The show's not bad. It's pretty good. You should subscribe to it and and listen to it so we can talk about what we heard together. That that would be cool. So thanks to you, those among you who are already doing that, and, and I encourage the rest of you to do it as well. I have to go. I will talk to you soon. Bye for now.